The more you learn, the more you realise there is still to learn. This is Sparking Connections, a podcast where two education enthusiasts teach each other about their respective fields of study. My name is Kimberly Wardle, and I'm a final year microbiology student at the University of Surrey. And my name is Esme Beaumont, and I have a literature degree from the University of Liverpool. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to episode seven of uh, Sparking Connections. Today, I am talking to Kim about a play called Tis Pity She's a Whore by John Ford. Um, mm-hmm. Upfront warning, here be spoilers. If you haven't read the play, then this isn't going to make any sense. And you also will not be in any way prepared for the strange things we're about to discuss. <laughs> yeah, full on strange, straight straight into the offset. <laughs> so, yeah, what did you think, Kim, before I get into the the introduction to the play? Just your first thoughts? I I wasn't expecting... I mean, I obviously knew that incest was a big point of it, but I wasn't expecting it to just straight up start with, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm praying because I have weird thoughts about my sister. And the priest was <laughs> like, yep, that's that's bad. And yep. it just... That's it. That's all the, the start you get. And then it just dives right in. And I, I quite liked that. I thought it kind of catches your attention. Yeah. But I found the language itself to be very difficult to read. Okay, that's fair enough. I actually picked this one partly because it's, it's it's entertaining and partly because it is a little easier than some of the other stuff that I've read, at least from this overall period. Right. Okay, so Spitty She's a Whore was published in 1633. To my understanding, it was probably first performed a tiny bit earlier than that, but that's when the... That is when my copy of the book says that the, the, the play itself was first published. Yes, yes. So... John Ford himself was born in Devon in 1586. He studied at the Middle Temple from 1602, basically to be a barrister. His earliest known works are collaborations from the 1620s, and his the plays that he wrote by himself, not with other playwrights, written from 1625 to 1634. The date and circumstances of his death are unknown, and his writing is from the Caroline era, the reign of Charles I, um, mm-hmm. This is 1633 being near the beginning of his reign. So the Caroline era was a pretty turbulent time. I don't know a huge amount about the history. This is um, the absolute basics. But there was a civil war from 1642 to 1651. Charles I was suspected of being Catholic, which was not a good thing at the time. Okay. Uh, he had a reputation as a tyrant. He was eventually executed in 1649. Mm -hmm. So 1633, this is before the Civil War, but people were already suspicious of him. So the issue of Catholicism will will come up in the play. Mm -hmm. If we get around to talking about that aspect, you will notice the two characters who are representatives of Catholicism specifically. They're not altogether bastions of morality, necessarily. But it is more complex than just Catholics are bad. Uh, mm-hmm. The friar is a much more complicated character than the cardinal, for example. Right. So, in terms of the basics of Renaissance drama, again, this is a very, very, very brief overview. But the only contemporary image of a theatre interior that we know of, according to my <laughs> lecturers in the second year, uh, <laughs> is the De Witt sketch of the Swan Playhouse uh, around 1596. So, I will put an image in the show notes, but. Basically, it has a thrust stage, so circular or many-sided. The audience would surround it um, very close, so there'd be quite a claustrophobic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Seats were expensive, uh, the groundlings stood but and only paid a penny, so it was accessible to many people, but to sit down, you know, 
properly was expensive. Yeah. There was a canopy held up by two columns painted with celestial imagery, so this was the heavens. It's interesting to look at sort of metaphorical spaces in the theatre. So if that if the canopy is heaven, the stage could be earth, and there was also a trap door. Uh, this isn't pictured in the DeWitt sketch, but in some theatres there was a trap door. Uh, and that mm-hmm. below that could be hell. You could have voices coming from below right. the stage. There were doors upstage into the tiring house, which is where actors changed and props were stored. And there was, uh, in some theatres, a discovery space, which was a sort of recess into the tiring house, which is between the doors. So it's metaphorically a private space. It's used for re- revealing tableau, uh, often had curtains. And most importantly, theatres were outside uh, and plays were during daylight. So you would not be able to have scenes set at night and have them actually be dark. So in a lot of Shakespearean plays, for example, um, you need a character to say, it seems to have gotten dark in order for you to know (laughs) nighttime because you couldn't do anything with lights. However, by 1633, there were indoor theatres. So the this play specifically was first performed in the Phoenix Theatre, which had an indoor stage. This was relatively new at the time, to my understanding. So it was lit by candles, which were trimmed during the act intervals while music was played. So early performances were thus divided into five sections rather than the two of modern convention. Mm. The candles may also have enabled the company to control the level of stage light in a way that was not possible in outdoor theatres, so that nocturnal sequences like the end of Act 3 could be played in relative, though probably not absolute, darkness. The stage had three main entrances set across the back facade, two of them doors, and the middle one a large curtained alcove known as the discovery space, so as I mentioned before, which enabled large props such as Annabella's bed in Act five scene five to be brought onto the stage and could also be set with scenery to represent a confined space like Soranzo's and the friar's study there was also a stage balcony used in three scenes and large enough to accommodate at least two actors so that's the the theater if you can if you can picture that i can it was first performed by the resident company of that theater queen henrietta's men which had 14 principal actors plus some boy apprentices and again importantly at this point, actors were all men. So the female mm. parts would all have been played by uh, boys, usually. Although Putana could have been played by an adult man. It was, according to the introduction to this book, uh, it was not unknown for an adult male actor to play an older woman. But all of the younger women would have been played by boys. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. I Like, you have literal women around. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't you think, just put a woman in? They're not allowed. It's uh, <laughs> no. inappropriate. And I'm not entirely sure what the reasoning was. I'll have to mm. look into that. But... Because as well, like, women could go and watch theatre. Mm-hmm. So if it was so, especially like this kind of, the, this play in particular was very, like, dodgy. You know, like the topics <laughs> are very, like, ooh, in a, kind of inappropriate. So the fact that women can go watch it but not be in the play is very mm. strange to me. I mean you would have had more men watching than women I think um, mm. just based on women having to be in the home mm, that's a good point um, but also the very scandalous nature of the play is all the more reason to not have delicate women on stage <laughs> <laughs> you know they can't be involved in this of course so the other important piece of context well two more pieces of context uh, one being that theatres were very uh, commercial spaces in order to you know keep the playhouses open in order to you know make any money from it it had to appease 
a wide audience it wasn't just like nowadays we think of theatre as quite sort of posh and it's a thing that rich people do mm. renaissance theatre you had a very wide variety of, of people going to watch because like I said the groundlings would only pay, only pay a penny mm. the phoenix was a bit more complicated it was slightly more expensive to go the period that we're looking at uh, when I'm talking about renaissance drama what I'm talking about is 1576 mm -hmm. which was when the first outdoor theatre was opened until 1642 which is when the puritans closed all the theatres <laughs> uh, i studied this play at sixth form and i'm pretty sure i remember my uh, english teacher at the time saying that ah. this play was almost certainly part of it was it's not like they would have closed the theatres just because of this one play but it certainly didn't help <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine it did no so second piece of context re revenge tragedies that is the genre of this play it is a revenge tragedy mm -hmm. Uh, which are most prominent from 1587 until 1642. The earliest that I'm aware of, at least, is the Spanish tragedy, which was probably written around 1587. So a revenge tragedy is basically what it sounds like. It is a tragedy, and it's about revenge. I, I did sense that. <laughs> so Francis Bacon, in 1625, wrote an essay about revenge, uh, in which he points out, the most tolerable sort of revenge is for these wrongs which there is no law to remedy. It would, according to Francis Bacon, not be acceptable to uh, get revenge on somebody if they would be punished by the state anyway, um, mm -hmm. or if there is an obvious way to redress the wrong. However, it's more complicated than that when it comes to crimes committed where you can't get justice in the usual way. So, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, Boira or Boira in 1992 said, In the apparent absence of just governance, there is no temporal ruler even mentioned in the play. Ford's characters have to create justice and moral values for themselves. Their attempts to do so lead directly to incest and murder. Other revenge tragedies, for example, Hamlet, Hamlet's a prince and Claudius is the king. Hamlet can't just <laughs> call the police <laughs> on his uncle <laughs> <laughs> because Claudius is the king, he is above the law. In this case, it's a bit more complicated because Giovanni and Annabella, they're not nobles. They are of the merchant class. Right. So they are not above the law. So in theory, this shouldn't apply. But it does because there aren't any other rulers mentioned in the play, as Boira points mm -hmm. out. But it's, it's interesting. Revenge tragedy was pretty popular at the time, according to Tanya Pollard. It was partly because, you know, sex and violence sell. True. Um, but also for political reasons, there was a lot of frustration with the Elizabethan bureaucracy because people didn't entirely trust that that mm -hmm. things were fair. Uh, there were also a lot of public executions right. at the time, um, which I think raised interest in these sorts of topics. Yeah, you want to know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah. So I'll quote Molly Smith here. During Elizabeth's reign, 6,160 victims were hanged at Tyburn. Tyburn? I don't know how you pronounce that one, sorry. Uh, Elizabethans were certainly quite familiar with the spectacle of the hanged body in the dis disemboweled and quartered corpse. Uh, in Kidd, uh, Kidd is another playwright from earlier on, uh, in Kidd's treatment of the body as spectacle, we witnessed most vividly the earliest coalescence of the theatrical and the punitive modes in Elizabethan England. Uh, people would line the streets like to hurl abuse at condemned uh, criminals when and as they were executed in front of a crowd. It's all, I feel like I've sort of uh, <laughs> talked in circles here, but essentially, Revenge was a thing on mm -hmm. people's minds for a bunch of reasons. And justice in a very sort of 
visceral way was on people's minds. So, according to Tanya Pollard, according to the genre's conventions, revengers are typically frustrated victims who want retribution for a crime that goes unpunished, a crime either committed or protected by the highest power in the land. And the revenge invariably exceeds the original crime, creating new victims, and the revenger is always eventually punished for taking the law into his or her own hands. The thrill of the plays, though, depends on the audience identifying with the aggrieved revenger and rooting to punish the original wrongdoer. So in the context of Hamlet, Hamlet, we agree, like we, we sympathise mm. with him and we're rooting for him because what Claudius has done is obviously terrible. However, by the end of the play, Hamlet has killed Polonius as well. And, you know, Gertrude is dead. Ophelia is dead. (laughs) He hasn't managed to just get revenge. He's caused a whole bunch of other uh, deaths in the process. Right. Which makes it quite a complex genre in terms of um, the relationship between the characters and the audience, in terms of who you sympathise with and who you're rooting for. And, you know, the ending is tragic, obviously, um, because it's a tragedy. But it's tragic in a more complicated way than simply a character messed up and now everything's gone to hell a final quote that i want to point out about revenge tragedy or about tragedy in general is from a book called creation by peter conrad in which he points out tragic heroes argue with the universe and impugn its creator and i don't know whether i would agree with that for all tragedies ever but it definitely applies here when we're talking about giovanni so i think giovanni is probably a good character to begin our discussion with um, now that I have talked your ear off about <laughs> the context, um, do you want to tell me your opinions on Giovanni to start with? What, what, what impression did you get when you were reading the play? I find it, I don't, mm, I found him very odd, not just because he uh-huh. was, you know, having incestuous thoughts towards his sister, but the fact that he knew that they were wrong and he was going to try, he was trying mm-hmm. to get help for the fact that they were wrong. Yeah. And yet he still was like, hey, sis, let's like, hook up. Like, he was the one that instigated it, right? It wasn't as if she was, like, hanging around him. I mean, obviously there was that incident where she was like, who is that beautiful man? Oh, it's my brother. <laughs> First of all, she wasn't weirded out by that, which to me is a big red flag. Mm-hmm. So I found him to be, like, very odd because uh-huh. it made me wonder, like, where did he get the idea that this was an appropriate attraction and like what about like clearly everyone knows that it's wrong because everyone was horrified when they were like realized what was going on and that Mm -hmm. the sister was pregnant by with his baby which was like oh no so like is that was incest punishable by law then in this context because he straight up murdered his sister and then murdered a bunch of other people and then he was murdered so like Mm. to me they should have either been like clearly the clearly the praying wasn't working yeah so would they not have imprisoned him because you said he was a merchant it wasn't as if he was above the law i'm honestly not sure um i would assume it would have been right uh but i'm not entirely sure I think it's interesting that you consider him odd because I did a lot of research, you know, look, read, read a whole bunch of essays uh, in the last in the last week, and everyone seems to have a slightly different view of Giovanni, ranging from 
he's basically sympathetic he's in a horrible situation and we shouldn't and like you know he goes too far and he does a lot of terrible things but he's basically sympathetic uh, all the way to he is an absolutely abhorrent person from the very first moment he's we see him I, yeah, I, so, I guess, like, I understand people, you, in the context that he's written about, yeah, he seems like a horrible human being, mm. but we can't pretend that other things weren't done, like, say he's mentally ill, for example, that's the reason mm-hmm. he can't seem to get past these thoughts about his sister, like, surely then mm-hmm. he should have gotten some help, like, praying to me isn't just gonna cut it you need to do something else yes bear in mind it's 1633 that's true that is true (laughs) but yes i see what you mean but like to say that it was like he's the worst person and you know an absolute disgrace like yeah he is but it might not necessarily Mm. be his fault which isn't to say that incest is like right and that he should (laughs) have done any of what he did with his sister but like in modern day context you kind of got to look at it and be like hmm yeah he's a bit of a weirdo and he needs some help like he he the fact that he pursued it and the fact that his sister was also like yeah all right also indicates that like something within the family mm. is odd like you don't just you don't get told that that is wrong and then still act upon it you know right yeah so i just find the whole dynamic and him as a person to be very yeah I think a lot is dependent on seeing it in production because for example um, the same critic whose name I couldn't pronounce earlier Bruce Boira or Boira I'm not sure uh, says if we admit the sincerity of Giovanni's attempts at repentance and Ford has done what he could in this passage to make them appear convincing we must also recognize the ethical predicament in which he finds himself when they fail which I think is fair enough. However, mm. this mm. is what uh, Boira has decided from reading um, the passage in which Giovanni says, oh, I've tried everything. Yeah. In production, that could be presented in so many different ways. Like, you could mm-hmm. have, um, if I find the, the scene in question, Giovanni is told by the friar you need to spend i think it was a week praying and you know mm-hmm. seeking uh, forgiveness here hide to thy father's house where lock thee fast alone within thy chamber then fall down on both thy knees and grovel on the ground cry to thy heart wash every word thou utterest in tears and if be possible with blood so he, and so he's told to do that for seven days and giovanni says mm-hmm. all this i'll do to free me from the rod of vengeance else i'll swear my fate to my god which I interpret that as deeply ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. Giovanni says, absolutely, yes, I will do all of that. However, if it doesn't work, I'm going to do what I want, basically. He calls it his fate, but it's cl- you know, he is clearly assuming that what he wants to do is what he's fated to do. And calling it fate implies that it's inevitable. We had a whole discussion about fate in the Crystal Cave episode. And so, nowhere in, at least in my copy of this play, is there a stage direction that says Giovanni prays for seven days, right? They didn't really have stage directions as such in um, the original uh, plays as they were written at the time, because what tended to happen was that each actor would be given their lines and not much else. 
and things tended to be written down after the fact or you know it's you didn't tend to have a lot of stage directions quite a lot is put in after the fact and put in by scholars late much later on so who knows what the actors at the time were told to do with that it's entirely possible that giovanni would then you know that you'd then have a scene with just music of giovanni praying and you're meant to infer that it's a long time and you know a modern director could do that they could have giovanni say all this i'll do to free me from the rod of vengeance else i'll swear my fate's my god and then fall to his knees and pray or you can skip straight to scene two and completely don't include any evidence of that whatsoever which completely changes it right 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 so Bora has said if we admit the sincerity of giovanni's attempt at repentance well do we do we admit the sincerity of them? Like, do we believe him? It completely Yeah, like, I don't. Right, but that's just from reading it. A director right. can make you believe the sincerity. Right. You know, a speci- you know, a specific actor's portrayal could make you go, yeah, he's tried really hard. Or could make you go, he doesn't care at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it completely depends. I think it's interesting that, you know, Giovanni insists on the language of fate and rationalising his attraction to her, as if to convince the friar, when it seems to me like he was going to do it all along. Like, why does he bother convincing the friar? Again, Bora points out, from the beginning, he seeks to legitimise his love within the setting of a religious ethical system. Clearly, he wants to be told that he's not doing anything bad. He wants the friar to say, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's acceptable. Whereas Susanna B. Mintz points out that Annabella doesn't do that. Mm. You know, she doesn't bother um, asking for permission in the way that Giovanni does. And yet Annabella is frequently characterised as an innocent victim in a lot of uh, criticism, at least that I've read. Yeah, she... I feel like when I read it, she was a lot less into it than he was. Like, to me, I felt like she just sort of happened to be like oh yeah sure like you like me yeah i like you too yeah whatever whereas like giovanni actively went up to her and was like this is my proposition what do you have to say Mm. i guess like you do see her looking down from the balcony being like oh he's cute who is it oh it's my brother (laughs) but she doesn't actually act on that Mm. until giovanni says something see that's how i felt when i first read it but on, on rereading, I noticed things. Aside from the fact that she basically says to him, for every side that thou hast spent for me, I have sighed ten. Like, she says that she had loved him before. Oh, yeah. You know, she, she says, thou hast won the field and never fought. And she's the one who initiates the marriage vows, right? When um, she says, on my knees, brother, even by our mother's dust I charge you, and he repeats the same thing. You know, she is the one who starts that, that's her idea. And Mintz points out that Annabella says, even by our mother's dust, and Giovanni says, even by my mother's dust, Mm. which can be interpreted in a few ways, in terms of Giovanni being possessive, not sort of recognising them as equals, whereas Annabella sees them as equals. And that's all fair enough, but also, Mintz points out that it could be that Giovanni is not acknowledging how related they are right yeah whereas annabella is saying yes we have the same mother we are siblings and and i want to do this you know it sort of it puts a lot more weight on what she's doing 
and implies that she is a lot more culpable in this than a lot of people like to think. I think we want to have this narrative that is sort of innocent female victim and awful male abuser. And Giovanni is absolutely terrible to her later in the play. But at this point, I don't think it's that simple. Because she's definitely not witless. She's de- oh, like no. she definitely knows what. Like you can't pretend that she didn't agree to the fact that, like, to Giovanni's reasoning. Mm. It's interesting because Giovanni is very manipulative, right? Mm-hmm. When he says to her, "Firstly, I have asked counsel of the Holy Church, who tells me I may love you," which is not true. Mm-hmm. But surely Annabella must know this, right? Boas in 1986 points out Annabella must be either very naive or intensely prejudiced to believe or accept that because there's right. absolutely no way that the church would would sanction incest but assuming that he expects her to believe him perhaps that's you know he's outright lying to her and also he says must I now live or die as in like that is the equivalent of saying to someone love me or I'll kill myself like that's right right you know that is manipulative and you could argue that annabella is saying no 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 i've always loved you like oh you know going along with it because Mm. she doesn't know what he'll do if she doesn't but like it's difficult because we can't speculate about what he would do if she had said no because that's not what ford has written you know right exactly and then from the ending you'd i would suspect that giovanni definitely would have still done the same thing that he did yeah. if she disagreed because he, he's very possessive you, yeah you don't simply murder someone just because but he seems to i mean to be fair he thought he was slighted mm. but like if she'd slighted him earlier in the story and not had sex with him i feel like the ending would still have been the same like he still would have been possessive and um sort of angry enough to to kill her yes i think that's fair i think Personally, I see more of a change in Giovanni over the course of the play. Again, you see a lot of, well, at least I've read a lot of, of essays recently that seem to see Giovanni as, a, as starting out extremely possessive and violent. And I don't, I think he starts out possessive, but he doesn't start out violent, in my opinion. That, that's entirely just my own sense of the character. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to assume that Giovanni wouldn't have murdered her for saying no at the start of the play. Do you not think? I feel no. like he was already at that point of sort of on the edge, crazy almost. I think he would because... have done something rash, but I don't know whether right. that would have been murdering her. Okay. I mean, again, who knows, right? It, there's right. plenty of plenty of um, ways of interpreting it, and like a lot depends on the actor. I'm positive that mm. there are that there will have been versions of the play performed that would have made me go, oh, absolutely, he would have killed her. (laughs) Right, yeah, right. But I think he's so Mm self-centred that he probably would have been more likely to do something to himself. I think he would have made a huge show of of harming himself in some way to convince her, you know, thinking that would convince her. Or he would have run away and exiled himself and written letters (laughs) to her in blood or something. He would have done something ridiculous and rash. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think at this point that he was murderous. I think it's the it's the escalation of events that eventually leads to the murder, in my opinion. I can I can see that. But I mean again, it depends. 
it depends. I think it's fair enough to say he would have murdered her now. I, I, I think, you know, I'm arguing based on my personal perception of the character. I think that's it as well. When reading it, it's all also based on, like, your personal, mm. like, belief of a person. So I feel like I would be very sceptical of him as a person. So I'd oh, be like, yeah. Mm, yeah, he'd definitely do something ridiculous and I'm definitely sceptical of his, of his motives here. I definitely think that... Mm-hmm. I think his feelings for her are genuine, but I think he is... He, yeah. He's twisting the world around him to fit what he wants, and I don't think. He, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I think it's. I think at this point he is selfish and arrogant, mm-hmm. but I don't think he's lying about the way he feels. I think he is interpreting his feelings in the way that he wants to. If you see what I mean. Yeah. At this point, he's more sort of disillusioned. He's like. Mm-hmm confused and just wants he just feels this way and he just wants to resolve how he feels yeah whereas later on he's actually mad yeah but yeah by the end of the play he has completely lost touch with reality like his frame of reference for what is normal is completely whack um yeah very skewed. <laughs> yeah but yeah no it's interesting i think the way that giovanni argues with the friar is really really interesting to me Mm-hmm. Like I care less about the events later on. Well, I mean, we we can totally discuss them because they are still interesting. But the thing that I find most interesting is the fact that he is debating this, and how he debates it, and like why does he choose to debate with the friar? Like it's, right. it's like, like why is he bothering with this? Why does he care so much about convincing the friar that this mm. is what he's going to do? It implies that at some point. He did go to the friar genuinely wanting help. Right. And then was told no and then and then turned to this, like couldn't take being told no. I, I don't know, it's it's strange. Yeah, it's like at the very start he's he's putting himself out there and saying, Help me fix this. Mm. You wouldn't have bothered doing that if there wasn't some sort of thread of of thought that suggested that it was wrong. Like, if you thought it was the only way, then there would be no consideration that it was... Yeah, and the fact that he's sort of considered... Like, the friar says that Giovanni was a miracle of wit, a wonder of thine age. You know, he went to university in Bologna and was applauded uh, for his government behaviour, learning, speech, etc. He's an extremely intelligent young man. But not all of the the critics that I've read agree with that. (laughs) So Cyrus Hoy said, Giovanni is, in fact, a rather shallow young man. His learning is little and it is thereby dangerous. It is specious, is that how you say that word? And showy and bears all the marks of having been recently acquired. By the end of Tis Pity, there has come to seem something well nigh touching in the sophomoric trust he has placed in the syllogism and in the manner in which he reports to logical proof as a means of silencing criticism and justifying his position in the eyes of a condemning world. So sophomoric Mm -hmm. meaning conceited and overconfident, but poorly informed and immature. Which... It's interesting because it's difficult, I think, for us to look at it and sort of make a judgment either way. Because right. for me, he sounds very intelligent. But that's because he's talking about, like, Plato and stuff, which, mm. you know, I, again, I remember some from <laughs> A-level philosophy, but <laughs> not enough. And because it's all in, you know, old-timey language, it all sounds very clever. Yeah. But actually, his arguments don't make that much sense when you really think about them. You know, once you've made sense of the of the 17th century language, his arguments are not sensible. You know, he's saying mm-hmm. 
for example, say that we had one father, say one womb, cursed my joys, gave both us life and birth. Are we not therefore each to other bound so much the more by nature, by the links of blood, of reason, nay, if you will have it, even of religion, to be ever one? Like, no. <laughs> like he's not sure. just saying, no. yeah. Like he's just saying, well, look, we have this in common. We're connected by blood. Therefore, we should be connected, you know, deeper than any other people. And it's like, okay, fine. And therefore, I should be allowed to have sex with her. No, <laughs> that's, no that's, that's not a logical much. conclusion. I just think that if he really wanted to repent and he really wanted to, if he really wanted to show as smart as he sounds, he wouldn't have done made any advances. Mm. I guess to me, like obviously, I have siblings, and incest to me is completely like baffling. Oh, absolutely. So it's hard for me to like logic it out from his perspective. Yeah. Which is why I think his feeling is genuine. Right. Because some people have sort of suggested that he's doing it to shock, you know, that he's that it's a challenge to the status quo, that he wants to do something bad, mm. like you know, all of these arguments. But I, his because his arguments don't entirely make sense, and because it is such a stupid and self-destructive thing to do. Like, why? Why would you? do something like this if you didn't mm. genuinely completely feel like you had to like why would you do something that is going to completely wreck your you know you're not you're it's going to destroy his reputation and right. damn his soul it's ambiguous whether he completely believes you know what his religious beliefs are really it's going to lead to at the absolute minimum complete ostracization and exile from his family if people find mm -hmm. out right like that is the least like if if everything goes the best way it can he will still be exiled from his family and you know the friar who he seems to place a lot of trust and respect in is going to completely cut him off and at worst what happens at the end of the play clearly it is a yeah. bad idea <laughs> a horrible um, idea which means he must genuinely feel like he needs to. He must genuinely feel like it's the only thing he can do, that he has to act on this, that he cannot resist doing it. But the fact that it's a compulsion makes me feel like it's something, like he's mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Because I, obviously, I can only speak from personal experience, but that's not a compulsion that people have. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, he, he argues that it's, that it's nature you know he says mm. that it's you know he, he makes this distinction between a peevish sound a customary form from man to man as in well you know culture says that incest is wrong versus are we not therefore each to other bound so much more by nature that he's saying mm. you know i'm doing what is natural as opposed right. to what is socially sanctioned but like in nature most animals avoid incest too right that's what i was gonna say like they look to increase their gene pool yeah. by looking outside of it, as opposed to being like, oh, well, my siblings are fertile too, so we're going to breed. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> exactly. Like it's, Although, now I think about it, in the play, so the one, um, in terms of the reasons why incest is bad, right? Say you disagree with the, with the law on this topic, say you disagree with... <laughs> Um, religion, say that you don't care about social standards, say you do not care about anything that other people are going to tell you mm -hmm. about why it's a bad idea. 
the like the final reason that is not morality that is not external logic is that you are increasing the chances for your future children to have genetic differences that will lead to disabilities or illnesses yeah like abnormalities yeah and in general i'm not necessarily i'm not advocating sort of not having children based on whether or not they're going to be disabled but you know inter if the incest specifically that is the the that, that is the thing that we say look bad idea look at all of these mm-hmm. sort of royal bloodlines where they were intermarrying because of financial reasons and to keep the bloodlines pure and whatever other weird stuff mm-hmm. um and you see that many of them had medical issues because of it right and it's completely preventable that's yeah. that's the thing is that you you don't need to do that yeah so therefore you're you're providing an opportunity for these children to be disabled for like no like preventable like there was a preventable way of yeah if you could have just not slept with your sister um but that is the one thing that we don't see in the play Mm. annabella gets pregnant but that child dies in the womb right that child Mm -hmm. dies with annabella so i don't know what john ford is saying there i don't know whether it's just that it was more there was more pathos in having the unborn child die as well that it was somehow even more tragic that way or whether mm-hmm. it was, you, you know, whatever. But what it means is that the only consequences for the incest are social consequences. Mm-hmm. G- you know, Giovanni, like, yes, of course, there's a huge amount of death that results, but all of that death is murder. That's all people killing each other. Mm-hmm. We don't see the one consequence that is sanctioned by nature rather than by culture. So... yeah. I don't know whether that's that in some way legitimizes Giovanni, whether that mm. you know, whether the play somehow justifies his argument. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I would say that it seems like a sort of um I don't know if justification is the right word that I would use, but like a sort of appeasement of the 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 incest storyline so like mm. obviously the whole time you're thinking oh this is very wrong and the result is going to be you know tricky to to understand or to deal with but you don't really get to a result it just no. kind of is like oh incest yeah like people are dead now so it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yes that's the thing people are dead now so it doesn't matter like at the end of right. the day it almost doesn't matter how it started because everyone's dead and actually you know, they're dead because of infidelity and, and, and stuff, not... Mm. Oh, it's interesting. Like, Saranzo wouldn't have been any less angry with Annabella if it had been somebody, you know, if she'd got pregnant by Baghetto or Grimaldi. He wouldn't be any less angry. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like incest has no consequences. Yeah, like, Saranzo is furious with her long before he ever finds out that the child is Giovanni's. He's not angry... Well... He's disgusted by the incest later when he finds out about it, but mm-hmm. long before he finds out about it, he's furious that he that he has been made to look like an idiot. That the the woman he's going to marry isn't a virgin because that mattered at the time. You know, it's not. It's his violent possessiveness and you know jealousy that causes him to want to get revenge yeah. on Annabella. And later on, Giovanni wanting Soranzo dead is because, as far as he's concerned, 
as far as he's concerned they are married and mm-hmm. um i'll include some uh, a link to something in the um show notes uh, i was reading that basically according to a lot of schools school, school schools at the time they are married right in the eyes of god they're married they have made these mm-hmm. vows so as far as giovanni's concerned soranzo's crime is getting with giovanni's wife the fact right. that their brother and sister is irrelevant right if if giovanni had got with a di- had got with a girl who was not related to him and made these secret mar- private marriage vows and then soranzo had legally married her he would mm-hmm. be just as angry right right the other deaths are because of all of the subplots right you know Vegetta ends up dead because of Grimaldi and um you know Hippolyta ends up dead it's a whole thing but mm-hmm. those are all completely separate to the incest yeah the consequence of the incest is not really a consequence of the fact that it was incest it's a consequence of the fact that everybody is jealous and possessive Huh. <laughs> I think the the ending, the consequences at the end, mm-hmm. lends itself to what we talked about at the beginning in terms of Giovanni stepping over the line, but not really caring. Mm-hmm. So he's like, the ending just shows that he still doesn't care, and he's not had any consequences for the fact that he doesn't care. Right. And like, okay, maybe there are like supernatural consequences, you know, he, he, he dies, he's he could have gone to hell. We we don't know. Whatever you believe, we don't know. But, like, it just kind of added to the fact that he did what he wanted. And then he continued to do what he wanted, even when it didn't work out for him. Even when he dies, he says to... Is it Vasquez who kills him, or is it one of the banditti? Um, um, I'm not sure. Yeah, banditti kill him. The banditti, yeah. And he says... Thou hast done for me but what I would have else done on myself. Mm-hmm. As in, well, I was going to kill myself anyway, so thanks for doing that. Which, yeah. He, like, whether or not that's true, uh, we, you know, we can't be sure. He hasn't, I don't think he's expressed any particular sort of suicidal ideation throughout the rest of the play. But given mm-hmm. what's just happened, it's entirely possible that after killing Annabella, his plan was to kill himself. So even at the end, he's doing what he wants. In at least at least if you believe what he says to to the people who kill him. Yeah, definitely. It just it shows that he was gonna do what he wanted either way and the consequences for that are not really anything because the only reason he was angry was because Annabella married someone else. Mm. So it's not even the fact that, you know, she was taken away from him or anything. It was just the fact that she because do you think that she felt bad for this incestuous relationship? Because she, she did like she did fall to her kneel, knees and and weep and all that kind of stuff. But like, do you think that was just for show? I'm really not sure because you know the friar says to her that she must repent and terrifies her into repenting with threats of hell. And right. She says she cries for mercy. She says, is there no way left to redeem my miseries? Says that she is revol- resolved to marrying Soranzo. And she writes that letter to Giovanni saying, you mm. know, saying to repent and everything. But I don't know whether at this point she is sorry or whether she's scared. Because that's the thing about religion and the heaven and hell thing, is that 
if you threaten somebody with hell and they agree to do what you ask them, does that mean that they agree with your morality or does it mean that they are terrified of the consequences? Right, because there's a difference between believing or just being scared that if you don't believe something bad's going to happen to you. Yeah, like I'm not saying this to, to dunk on religion. What I'm saying is Giovanni expresses that incest is a customary form, that this is just, this is, you know, it's 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 a rule that people follow, but it's not necessarily natural. And so Annabella at this point might be saying, yes, I have broken the rules. I have done something that is, I've done something that God doesn't like. Is that the same thing as saying, I believe my actions were immoral and I'm sorry for that? It's it's less ambiguous. Because, yeah, I I would say that Annabella and Giovanni aren't apologetic. No. They're they're accepting of what they've done. Yeah. You know, they're fully willing to accept the consequences, but they're not apologetic. Right. And at the at the very end, when Giovanni kills her, she says, "Forgive him, heaven, and me my sins. Farewell, brother, unkind." It's interesting because when she says, "And me my sins," well, which sins is she talking about? Does she mean, yeah, mm. you know, like it, on the one hand, it sounds like she's saying, you know, forgive forgive us both for everything you know everything like the relationship and the crimes since mm-hmm. but is she just saying forgive him for murdering me and forgive me for getting with Saran- you know agreeing to marry Saranzo yeah even though, basically being you know, a you know? polygamist polygamist marriage yeah like it's it's interesting I don't know I think she is I think she regrets what she's done I don't know whether mm-hmm. she believes that it was wrong you know Right, right. Because, you know, when when Saranzo is demanding that she um, tell him who the father was, she says, um, well, she refuses to tell him and says that the father was the man, the more than man that got this sprightly boy. This noble creature was in every part so angel-like, so glorious, that a woman who had not been but human as was I would have kneeled to him and have begged for love. As in, she she might just be saying this to insult Soranzo, but she's speaking so highly of Giovanni after she has supposedly repented. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, did you actually repent for the right reason? Hmm. What, like, what's going on in your head? Yeah, it it's... it implies that she still is in love with him, right? Right, right. You know, that isn't what you say about you know, this is not, I love him as a sibling. This, you know, this isn't, um, he's my brother and I care deeply about him. That's mm-hmm. the language, that's the language you use about a romantic part. It's it's all very odd. And that, like, like I said before, it's not as if we can get into the heads of people who have incestuous yeah. thoughts. I mean, ultimately, again, it would depend on um, the actor's choice, right? Well, mm-hmm. the director's choice and yeah. the interpretation. Yeah, because Annabella could be very repentant and could be very upset and... Yeah, and Giovanni could could come across as very manipulative. Yeah, you could make it clear that in that scene she's saying this just to piss off Soranzo. Or you could Mm. make her repenting scene completely disingenuous. It completely depends. This is why I think theatre is so interesting. Reading plays can be so interesting because there are so many different ways to do it. You take the same words and put them in someone else's mouth and it becomes a completely different thing. Right, which is why you can get so many plays of the same, you know, script mm. and it doesn't it doesn't get boring. 
exactly that's why i've seen so many productions of hamlet <laughs> i wasn't going to call you out like that but I mean, oh my you, family you were the one that said it <laughs> my mother is sick of seeing productions of hamlet with me <laughs> but yeah i thought it was from an outside perspective quite amusing just in terms of the fact that it was like you could tell it was all going to go downhill mm. when they agreed to to have sex with each other so yeah I love how dramatic Giovanni was. Not only did he murder his sister, but he also then put her heart on the oh, knife and ran into like the hall. The, I assume it was like some kind of gathering, and he was like, "Guys, this may look like an ordinary heart, but it's not. It's the heart of my sister. I murdered her. You're welcome." He and it's like if they recognise it, he's like, "You yeah. know whose heart this is," and it's like, "Of course they don't." No. <laughs> We, we don't thank you Giovanni thank you for exposing us to this and then it's just like oh I'm gonna stab you now I'm gonna stab you and this person's getting stabbed and mm. who is it their father has a heart attack yep he just yep. dies of shock and horror of, of shock and horror <sighs> well actually though that's interesting because maybe this is a natural consequence because now their bloodline is destroyed mm-hmm. there's no one to carry on you could consider yeah. it a supernatural con- consequence. Okay. It isn't a biological consequence. No. But it no. is. Um, it is. It is the. Con- it is the natural consequence in the world of the play. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what Ford is sort of implying is the result of incest. If you see what I mean. Right. Because in you know you could say that it's the irony of the incest that was. I don't want to say popular. That implies people wanted it, but. <laughs> it was uh, a thing that was practiced by mm-hmm. uh, nobles, specifically aristocrats, who wanted to keep their bloodlines untainted by common yeah. blood. During this period of time, uh, it was not that uncommon for uh, aristocrats to marry, usually more likely to be cousins than siblings, mm. to keep money in the family. You know, say you have a daughter and you marry her to another family then you've got the issue of dowries and wealth being split across the families mm-hmm. and power potentially being split. Like it's, you know, exogamy, marrying outside of one's group is risky if you're trying to keep all of the power and the money in your own bloodline. And if you right. care about the concept of bloodlines, if you care about that idea of, of keeping the bloodline pure, massive, massive air quotes here, <laughs> then exogamy is a bit risky. Right. And so uh, there's, I can't remember who said it, but it, I will I will link the article, um, that in some respects this is a massive parody of that. Because Giovanni and Annabella, like I said, they're merchants, they're not nobles. And so for them to do what they do, it's, an, it's a parody of that, of what the nobles are doing. And sort mm-hmm. of, it's, like you said, it causes the end of their bloodline, not in a, not, it's not strictly the biological result but it is the result in the play that their father dies they die the unborn child dies right that's it that's their family done Mm -hmm. which is the exact opposite of the point of nobles committing incest which is to keep their bloodline specifically their bloodline going and not having it mixed with anything else so this play basically calls them out and then like hey (laughs) incest is wrong and see what happens to these incestuous characters in their family from at least one sort of uh critical perspective anyway yeah Mm -hmm. but at the same time it doesn't 
I, it's not the only way like we were saying there's no we don't see the biological consequence of their incest mm-hmm. we don't uh, and actually a lot of the stuff yeah, they could have just not been related and a lot of the events mm. would still have happened because the issue was infidelity and all of that kind of thing when we were talking about the the bloody heart um i think that's probably a good a good image to focus on uh, if you don't mind going back to that one um nice. because not only is it utterly ridiculous it's also really interesting. You can recognise it. <laughs> it's also um, <laughs> it's also interesting in terms of something that the play does quite a lot, which is making symbolism and metaphor literal. So the heart as the emblem of love, the heart as sort of the core of a person's being. Like nowadays, we'd say the the the, the core of who somebody is is their brain, because we understand. The, the importance of the brain in making a person who they are but at the mm-hmm. time um you know the heart was considered to be you know if you stab someone in the heart they die like that must be yeah. the most important the heart is making you right? alive yeah mm-hmm. so uh matthew r martin in an essay from 2012 which is wonderfully titled the raw and the cooked in ford's <laughs> Tisitation of the whore says Quite literally, Giovanni enters the scene with his sister's bloody heart on the end of his dagger, and his purpose is to display that heart as a heart, as a piece of warm, raw meat rather than metaphor or symbol. However, the heart is unrecognisable. Flourishing the heart at the astonished onlookers, he says, look well upon it, do you know it? Do you, do you know it? Well, no, the heart is unpartic- unparticularizable, visible only as just another piece of uncooked flesh now out of place, properly belonging in the kitchen rather than the banquet hall. In this pity, Ford concludes by confronting the onstage audience and the offstage audience, I would contend, with the completely raw, with the undifferentiated dead meat of the real. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Because we're used to talking about hearts, we're used to talking about... Even, um, you know, when Giovanni says, you know, love me or kill me, must I now live or die? You can interpret that as metaphorical. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about spiritual death, you know. Um, the friar says to him, basically, oh, what was the phrase? Death waits on thy lust. Like, if you do this, you will die. And he means a spiritual death. But here, right. it is literal death. Yeah. <laughs> and this is her literal heart. And, and, you know, we've been worried about sort of metaphorical or symbolic blood, bloodlines, blood purity, all of this. Well, here is her actual blood, just, just the actual blood from her actual body. Yes. And how all of these metaphors when you make them literal and you see what's actually happening, you know, you sort of look at it and you go, well, Giovanni and Annabella, they think that they're in love. And, you know, Saranzo cares about his honour, which is basically imaginary anyway. anyway. All of these social customs and um, things that we care about as a society and all of that is utterly ridiculous when you make it literal. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the play what you have are a whole bunch of dead bodies yeah. and a heart. <laughs> like, it right. is disgusting and it's gruesome. And you, you know, who cares about honour? You're dead. <laughs> like, right, you're, you're not honoured anymore. Mm. You're just flesh. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, whether you died honourably or dishonourably, whether people respected you in your life or not, whether people respect you after death or not, you are dead. And there is you know, no amount of honour can change that. Right. Very intense, an intense ending, though. Well, yeah. But at the same time, yeah, Martin says, 
women's bodies are signs as much as they are flesh and blood. Annabella's heart illustrates the complexity of this duality. Because, on the one hand, everything I just said, you know, metaphors turned literal, but also the heart represents the murder and Annabella's body represents the transactions between families, right? Between, you know, she is given mm. from Florio to Soranzo in this marriage. That, you know, we still have that, right? The bride is given away by her father. That's the patriarchal nonsense that is still the case. And so the heart is the the point around which all of this spins. Annabella's body as a lit as literal flesh and blood that belongs to her, as literal flesh and blood that Giovanni has taken ownership of and can use as he wants. Flesh and blood mm -hmm. that Soranzo has taken ownership of and legally at this point can use as he wants. And also as an object ignoring anything about her that is passed from family to family to represent certain things, to represent alliances between families. Right. And Annabella doesn't get a say in any of this. <laughs> mm. And even, yeah, I think Giovanni shows that even in death, she doesn't have any responsibility over mm. her, you know, the yeah. image of her body or anything like that. He, he just turns out her heart and is like, do you recognise this? And everyone's like, nope. So it just highlights the fact that she, even though they can't recognise her value when she's dead, they all seem pretty happy to be passing her around from person to person yeah. to take ownership that said, over her. I don't think it's completely right to say that she's just a victim, that, you know, she because no, the way that she, you know, she could have said no to Giovanni. She could have, again, mm -hmm. he probably would have done something rash. It probably wouldn't have been as simple as just saying no and him going, oh, okay then. But what if she'd gone to Florio? Right. You know, what if she had said to her father, my brother is crazy? What if she'd gone to the friar mm. and the friar had protected her from from Giovanni, right? Like, this, you know, that would be holy ground. It would have been mm -hmm. um, a much bigger issue um, that, you know, for her to be protected in a church or, you know, otherwise on religious ground. There are people she mm -hmm. could have gone to. And the fact yeah. that she's let down by all of them later on doesn't mean that she shouldn't have tried in the first place, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But as it stands, she says that she wanted him too. She says that she felt the same way, so... <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting to point out the fact that she was also the mm. first one to die. Like, the, the girls always... Oh, actually, even the... What is it? The lady's maid or whoever the... Oh, Pichana, she did, she yeah. She have her eyes put out before even before yep. even all the murder happened so like you know it's always the women that get taken out first and mm. then all the uh, other bloodshed happens yep. as a result <laughs> so there you go folks god we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes and we have got through like <laughs> three of the things on my post-it note but i think we may have to leave it there <laughs> i can edit it edit this down mm. to about an hour <laughs> Mm -hmm. I think that was a really interesting piece of work because it does touch on things that 
aren't typically things that are mm -hmm. common themes for productions. You know, you don't really. Well, talk the about incest, incest came up in a lot more plays of the period than you would think. It was um, again. It comes up in some of the some some of the essays that I will link, but it was actually more talked about than you would think. Um, but it isn't something we think about much oh, now. Oh, really? I. No, I was going to say now, definitely not. Because of all of those but, issues with bloodlines yeah, and things. It's just and, uh, keeping keeping money yeah. within the family and all those things that it actually was something people mm -hmm. um, seemed to be at least debating more. It came up in a lot more plays than than you would think. And we have, I guess, now we have a better con like a better grasp on the genetic mm. consequences of incest yeah. and things like that. So it'd be less relatable. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for it's indulging my strange, uh, <laughs> strange choices. <laughs> of course. Finishing off for mm -hmm. next week, or not next week, finishing off for next time, um, I think the science episode is going to be about the development of vaccines. Cool. So stay tuned for, for that later on in the month. Yeah. Any Any parting comments don't sleep with your siblings <laughs> mm, good advice good advice all right everyone thanks for listening see ya thanks for listening to sparking connections for references and further information find the show notes at anchor.fm slash sparking connections or at my website pleaseholdforth.squarespace.com where you will also find transcripts and links to find us elsewhere on the internet if you have any questions or comments, then email us at sparkingconnectionspodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment below the episode.